Good morning, church. I do want to thank everybody for being with us today. If you're visiting, we're glad to have you here. If you're a regular attender, welcome back. Uh, if you're watching online, thank you so much for tuning in. We have been uh, covering the spiritual armor from Ephesians chapter 6. We called the series War Ready. And this morning we're going to conclude our series uh, focusing on the last piece of equipment in Ephesians chapter 6. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to read verse 18 to get started. The last piece of equipment that the Apostle Paul uh, gives to us in the Scriptures is prayer. So I think this is definitely a case where the Apostle Paul has saved the best for last. And I think it's one that's easy to take for granted. As Christians, I think so often our focus can get on the various aspects of the war in which we are a part that it's easy to lose our focus on the reality that we have a one-way line uh, between us and our sovereign creator God. So Ephesians chapter 6, the Bible says this, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, in these remaining moments, I ask that you would just clear our minds and hearts and allow us to focus on you and on your word and allow us to grow and be challenged to pray, to really pray and seek your face in every circumstance we face in this life and for every person that you lead to us. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 6.18 is pray. And this is the truth. You and I need to pray. So I want you to say that with me. I need to pray. Say that again. I need to pray. You need to pray. In the same way human beings are not intended to live isolated without any meaningful relationships in their life, Christians are not intended for their lives to be void of prayer. And so the Apostle Paul wraps up his thoughts on the spiritual war that we're in and the tools in our arsenal to use against the enemy with this idea of prayer. I think praying so often can be difficult or complex when it doesn't have to be. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. This is the point in the Gospel of Luke, which is the story of Jesus, where Jesus has been transfigured, he's healed people, he's already given the Sermon on the Mount, he's preached powerful messages to crowds, and lives were transformed and changed. And the disciples have seen all of this. And they've seen the miracles of Jesus, they've heard his preaching, they've watched him pray, they've seen his transfiguration. And now in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, they ask Jesus a question. Let me give you the uh, text here. The Bible says this, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he had finished praying, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Something important in your life as a Christian is that you need to learn how to pray. 
You need to learn how to pray. Praying for a Christian is, is like riding a bike. You have to ride a bike consistently and boldly enough to risk making some mistakes so that one day you're fully committed to riding. You take the training wheels off and now you're rolling down the street. But I think what a lot of us find is that we seek God on a particular issue in our life and it doesn't seem like our prayer yields God's intervention. We don't hear God. It doesn't feel like God intervenes. It doesn't feel like our situation changes the way we want it to. And because there seems like there's a malfunction in our prayer life, it's so easy to just dismiss the power of prayer. I turned on my television a couple of weeks ago. When I turned it on, there was visual static. So I, like any Western American man got up off of my couch, and I pledged war against the static on my television screen. So what do I do when there seems to be a malfunction in the system, Trent and his television? I'm tinkering with wires, I'm unscrewing things, I'm plugging things back in, I'm unplugging things, I'm plugging them back in, I'm turning the TV on, I'm turning the TV off. And then at the height of battle, when it's just the forces of the enemy are against me, I have to pick up the phone and call the enemy's headquarters. So so I call Comcast. And and the battle almost got out of control at that point. All right, but 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 the point but the point of this is when when I turn on the TV and it doesn't seem like the TV is functioning correctly. From that moment on in my life, I don't assume that televisions just are are not, I just don't understand them. I'm not really capable of watching television like everybody else. And so I'm not going to try to fix the issue I have with my television. As unnatural as it would be for any of us to yield or succumb to defeat when we're doing battle against our television set, it should be equally that difficult for Christians to give up on their prayer life when it seems like there's a malfunction. If you finish reading Luke chapter 11, what you'd see is that Jesus teaches his disciples there are two really, really important parts to your prayer life. The first is being persistent. Be consistent. The Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about some of this. Get in there and don't yield. Continue to pray. Continue to seek God. Continue to ask for His intervention consistently and persistently. The second piece of prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples in Luke 11 is to be bold. You serve a big God who created this world that you live in and He's bigger than any of the big nasty problems that you face in life ever that you have faced or that you will ever face. So be bold as you take those problems to your Heavenly Father and consistently persist in asking God to intervene. That's how you learn the process of praying. It's like learning to ride a bike. You're not going to get on a bike, no training wheels, and start zooming down the road at 20 miles an hour. You're going to have some skinned elbows and knees and some bumps and bruises along the way. But if you'll persist, if you'll stay consistent, you're going to be an excellent bike rider. The same thing is true in your prayer life. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding also about the function of prayer. Why should we pray? What happens exactly when we do pray? I want to bring another verse of Scripture to your mind here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9. I've talked to groups of people over the course of my life and have had this question asked. Why 
pray? Can prayer actually change my situation? I mean, if God is in control, then what influence do I actually have in the world around me? If God is powerful and He's mighty and He's incalculably great, which He is, and compared to Him I'm literally nothing, which is also accurate, what level of influence do I actually have on the world around me? 1 Corinthians 3.9 says this. Hear this this morning. You and I are co-workers in God's service. We're God's field and His building. This is what's so astonishingly great about the God that we serve. Is He can take broken, bruised, and beat up people... And work together with them to change the entire world. God can take broken and brosed and beaten up people and work together with them to change the entire world. Remember this scripture reference. This is Exodus chapter 32. Here's a really good illustration of this. This is Exodus 32. The Israelites, God's chosen people, have been delivered from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. God raises up a guy named Moses to lead him out of there. A lot of really great things happen. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai where God is literally laying down the law in Exodus 32. And while the Israelites, the people that God used Moses to lead out of uh, Egypt in captivity where they were slaves. While Moses is up on the mountain with God getting the commandments and learning the law from God. God's people are at the base of the mountain and Moses' second in command says, Look, we don't have to wait on Moses. Take your earrings off, take off your golden jewelry that you got from Egypt. Let's make a calf and let's start to worship the calf. God's aware that this is going on and he tells Moses, I am so frustrated with my people, the Israelites. I'm grieved that, that they've turned away from me that the, the way that they have. So Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to destroy the Israelites and I'm going to use you, Moses... To become the father of a great nation that I will use to bless all nations. And Moses in that moment begs and pleads with God in a very bold, consistent way. It says, God, please save your people. Please be patient with them. Please fulfill the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Here's the really important verse, Exodus 32, 14. Because of Moses' pleading... Because of his boldness, because of his consistency, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. God had an action, had a course of action that he was going to take. And a man, Moses, by the way, was a murderer and was disobedient. So it's not like he's the shining example of a saint. He's a regular human being like us with flaws, except probably worse, because there aren't a lot of people maybe under the sound of my voice that have killed someone. And Moses' boldness and persistence in begging and pleading with God for the benefit of other people yields God's change in direction. So here's the point. God is unchangingly committed. He doesn't change in his commitment to work together with you through prayer To transform the world. Can I get an amen to that? If you pray and God hears it, that could transform and literally change courses of action that seem already set. Another scripture reference we don't have time for today. 
The story of Hezekiah in Isaiah 38, same kind of story. God has a specific course of action. A man intervenes boldly and prays. Things change. You and I, we need to pray. We need to learn to pray because prayer changes things. How should we pray? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, you should pray in the Spirit. You should pray in the Spirit. There have been a few times in my life where I've been so overwhelmed by a given situation, I literally could not speak. Watching my bride walk down the aisle to me on our wedding day, I couldn't find the words to describe to you what that felt like. I was so overwhelmed in that moment. The birth of each one of our children, to see that they came out looking more like their mom than me, was so overwhelming and comforting. I could not find the words to say to give that moment. I can't get you in my mind in those moments because I was so overcome with the nature of each of those situations. Sometimes in life, there are just no words for what we are going through. It is in those moments that you need to be more persistent and more consistent in your prayer life. But don't fear you're not going to say the right thing to your Heavenly Father. Or make the right request or do it in the right way. When when you're baptized into Jesus Christ, the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead is in you and empowers your prayer life. Even if you don't know what to say, the Spirit can go to the Father on your behalf for you. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6.18. This is what he's talking about in Romans 8.26. Let me read that to you. In the same way the Spirit helps us, in our weaknesses. We can be broken, broken, bruised, and beat up, and the Spirit will help us in our weaknesses. We don't even know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, here's the thing about this. I feel like in my study and where I'm at spiritually that this is like black belt level prayer. This is like black belt level Christian empowered Holy Spirit anointed prayer. And you've got to be spending a lot of time talking to your heavenly daddy to really get into a place where you are just crying out for God, not even aware of what you would say. This is not an excuse to lay down and close your eyes and let yourself drift off to sleep and think, I've just had a two and a half hour anointed spiritual groaning prayer session. This is like whatever, whatever the situation is, is so overwhelming. You have prayed about this so much. You and God are in sync so much on this that at this point you are just in the spirit, in your war room, in your place of prayer with the world locked out, no phone, no... And you and God are in that moment together and the Spirit cries out to God on your behalf. And I want to challenge you. If you have never been to that place before with God the Father where you were just so close to Him on a specific issue that the Spirit inside of you just longed to cry out, to groan, just to connect with God... My prayer for you is that you would find yourself in that place. God forbid you find yourself in the middle of an overwhelming situation. But if if it takes that to get you that close to God the Father, I would pray that experience on you. We've got to pray in the Spirit. Why don't... 
Why doesn't God then move in our lives more often? I think because often we think we're praying in the Spirit and really we're praying in the flesh. I think it's easy for Christians to think they're praying in the Spirit and really praying in the flesh. What does that mean? James chapter 4 and verse 3 makes it very clear. When you ask and you're in your quiet, private place and you ask God and you do not receive, it's because you're asking with wrong motives. You're asking with wrong motives. Ultimately, your motive is selfish so that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Here's the, here's the deal. Most of us pray with this idea of self-sovereignty rather than God's sovereignty. I'm praying based on what I want, what I need, what I love, and what I desire. And God's begging you to get in, in Scripture enough, to put on the armor enough, to seek His face enough, such that your will and His align. And what I seek and want and love and hope for and desire is straight from the heart of God in my heart. And now I'm praying in sync with the will of God, not in sync with the will of Trent. Now, in the moment my will and God's are synced up because I am in prayer, I am in the Word, I am war ready, God leads my prayer life rather than me leading my prayer life. I cannot overstate the importance of that distinction. I'm telling you, for years in my Christian faith, and even still today, I really struggle with a Trent-led prayer life. I got my 16 things that I know I need to pray about, and so I sit down, and in the 32 seconds I've allotted to spend two seconds on each of those items, which is true for me a lot of the time to confess, I expect God to intervene. It's on my time, it's my way, it's my prayers. But I think what I'm praying about might correspond with God's will because it seems to correspond with His Word. That's a good place to start. That's a good place to start. But we have to grow past that white belt level spirituality so that I am deeply in the Spirit as I am praying. Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. How often should I seek God's face through prayer in the life I live. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. There's another way of saying never ever stop praying. This is a major theme in Paul's literature. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 in the New Living Translation puts it really plainly. Never stop praying. I want you to say that with me. Never stop praying. Let's say that one more time. Never stop praying. So as you're sitting in church right now, I my prayer is that you're praying for me. Please, Lord, let Trent hit a home run on this sermon and not put me to sleep. Be praying that. Mike and I and whoever's up here preaching, I can I can almost sense you tuned in and praying for me to deliver you something from God's Word that connects. And if everybody under the sound of my voice is detuned and thinking about lunch or thinking about the game or thinking about the rain, I, I kind of sense that too. I want you praying for me. But I don't just want you praying for me while you're preaching. I want you praying for me throughout the week and not just me, for our whole forever family. And not just for our forever family, but for those 16 people that are in front of you in Walmart when there's only one person checking people out. 
and it's 5 o'clock on a Friday night, and you got groceries that are starting to thaw, and a house you got to clean, and three kids in the cart that were ready to leave 30 minutes ago. I want you to pray for each of those 16 people before you, instead of watching them unload what seems like an endless quantity of groceries stuffed into their grocery cart, and grumble and complain so that when you get to the checkout lady, not only can you not pray for her, but you almost can't avoid stabbing her in the eye with one of the porcupine quills you got sticking out of you by the time you huff and puff your way up there. And she's been dealing with this all day. But we're taking this for granted. You know, there, there was a time in my life uh, when I, I, I was talking to my dad. I said, Dad, look, my dad's an, an insurance kind of broker. And he, so I was talking to him. Kirsten and I were married. We were living in Arkansas, z, less than zero money. And I was going to school, and I was talking to my dad about our budget. And I said, Dad, look, no matter how I skin our budget, it's just not going to work. There's no way we can afford health insurance. And my dad, who has answered that specific argument at least 100,000 times, was surgically re- precise in his response to me. Son, if, that, if what you just told me is true, then it's also true that you don't have enough money not to buy health insurance. And he was exactly right about that. I think so often in my prayer life, the moment the battle starts is the moment I start praying. And I think that's almost exactly like me not buying an insurance policy, breaking my arm, and then walking into the insurance agent and saying, you know, I called about that policy. Uh, Can we talk some about that? As he's kind of leery of why I'm holding one arm behind my back, not willing to sit down and kind of grimacing in pain as I walk around. At the moment the battle starts, it's probably too late to pray the way we should have been praying up to that point. But we get so reactive in Western culture. This is one of the ways the enemy lulls us to sleep as Christians. Our lives are easy. In here, the temperature's nice. The lights are a little bit dim. Maybe they're dim if you're listening online. If my voice were to go kind of monotone and I wouldn't have a lot of good inflection. And you kind of get real comfortable in your seat. Your reaction is just going to be to just let those eyelids get real heavy. So the enemy would like to distract you by the simplicity of your life. Sometimes the storm that you need to be praying about is not the wild one that just overwhelms you. Sometimes it's when everything in life is calm to be praying that you stay watchful and vigilant. That's the next thing the Apostle Paul says. With this in mind, be alert. With this in mind, be alert. Peter says... In 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This idea of being watchful and prayerful continually is a huge essential element of Jesus' teaching on prayer. Why is that true? Because the battle never ever stops, even if it seems like there's a lull in the action. We're still fighting a war. Jesus said in Mark 14, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Because of the weakness of your flesh, you don't have the luxury of not being on red alert all the time. In Luke 21, he'd say, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. 
And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the, of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you might be able to escape that which is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. How often should I be watchful? How often should I be on red alert? How often should I be war ready? Can I take weekends off? Can I take evenings off? Can I take a lunch break? Can I take a vacation? Can I get family medical leave? No! No is the resounding answer to all of those questions based on the scriptures. Always be alert. Always be on the ready. When the storm is raging and it's too overwhelming for even words, or when it feels like you're just on a mountaintop and everything spiritually is coming easy, no matter which extreme you fall on, you have to be on red alert. You've got to be ready, and your readiness depends on your prayer life. Who should we be praying for? It's clear that we should be praying for God's people. With this in mind... Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. How often should we keep on praying for all the Lord's people, church? Always. How often should we keep on praying for all the Lord's people, church? We should always keep on praying for some of the Lord's people? No, for all the Lord's people. That's not just our brothers and sisters right here in West Monroe, Louisiana or in Dallas, Texas, or New York City, or in Central America where they've been hit by hurricane force winds, literally, but to our brothers in the Middle East and to people being persecuted all over the world, we should be praying for all these people. But so often, it gets easy to be reactive and self-centered in my prayer life. And so I miss out on being able to pray for everyone. The Apostle Paul went through more for his faith then I would dare say anyone under the sound of my voice has ever come close to even experiencing. And so if anybody had a good excuse for slacking up on praying for other people, surely it would be the guy who had to pray for himself time and time again to avoid death or famine or getting stoned or shipwrecked or imprisoned. In Ephesians chapter 1, when he starts the book out that we've been studying a section of, he says this, listen, I have not stopped. I haven't stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. When we bring our forever family into our prayer life, we, we stand shoulder to shoulder with other soldiers and form a united front that the enemy cannot stand against. People ask me all the time in recovery, I'm a recovering addict who is here today because of the prayers of a family that believed God could transform any heart. And people ask me in recovery all the time, what does it take for somebody to get sober? I say there are two things that are 100% guarantees. If you don't have them, you're not going to stay sober. The first is you've got to have Jesus Christ at the center of your recovery program. The second piece of that is you cannot do it alone. You can't do it alone. There might be a lot of different angles you could look at or approaches but the one guarantee is, if you're going it alone, you're going to lose. And the Apostle Paul knew that, which is why he didn't relent at always giving thanks for everyone he knew at all times in his prayers. Maybe you are that person, though, that's in the middle of that storm and you need, you need some 
intervention. I, I debated on how to teach this. What I decided to do is give you just an overview of prayer based on the text of Ephesians 6.18. What I thought about doing is giving you my favorite Apostle Paul story of prayer. I'm going to abbreviate that right now to close. It's Acts 16. I'm going to start in verse 20. The context is this. The Apostle Paul arrives in a place and sees a girl who is a slave owned by some men who are using her, she's demon-possessed, as a way to make money. The Apostle Paul sees her in bondage, prays for her, casts the demon out, now she's freed, but that thwarts the money-making scheme of her slave owners. So the story picks up there in verse 20. They brought them before the magistrates and said... The the slave owners brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in on the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. This is one of my favorite Deliverance stories in all of Scripture. This next verse is the reason why. Listen to this. Upon receiving such orders, he put them, listen to this, in the inner cell. He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stocks. You're going to have to read the rest of the story to figure out how God delivered them. It was a phenomenal, incredible, mind-boggling deliverance. But here's what happens to Paul and Silas. They're beaten, they're flogged severely, and then they're led into this jail. And so the way this would have worked is they get into the jail and they pass that first cell. And I have to think in my mind, Paul and Silas are thinking, man, I know God could get us out of that first cell. The door's just right there. It wouldn't take that much. And they go past that first cell and they see the second cell and they're thinking, okay, This is going to be a little bit harder, but I still know God could really deliver us from this cell. It's just one step away from the cell that's closest to the door. Cell after cell after cell they passed until they're at the inner part of the jail. The grungiest, nastiest, best protected, most hopeless part of the whole prison. And they're thrown into the inner part of the jail and then their feet are fastened in stocks. So they go from hopeless, they've passed all of, these, all of these cells to the inner cell, and they go from hopeless to defeated. If it was me, that would, have been, that, that would have been what happened. And when a Christian gets in that position where he's passed cell after cell after cell, and now finds himself in the inner cell, inner cell, the most desperate place, with their feet locked in the stocks, that's the hardest place to pray. So I want to give special attention to that person this morning, whether you're in that inner cell or whether you are on the mountaintop. Friend, don't let the enemy deceive you. You're in the same battle. And the same God that delivers from the inner cell keeps you faithful and watchful on the mountaintop. I don't know what your need is, but I'm going to close in prayer and we're going to sing and give you a chance to respond. We want to pray over you and encourage you. If there's a need in your life, take this opportunity and respond this morning. Let's pray. God, someone under the sound of my voice could be in the inner cell this morning. It was all they could do to drag themselves out of the bed in the rain and cold and, and, and find their way to your house this morning. 
God, I'd ask that you would enhance their strength and give them what's necessary, the strength that's necessary to respond today. We want to pray over them. We believe in the transformational power of prayer as we work together with you to change the world. God, maybe there's some who are on the mountaintop that just want to stay faithful and watchful and understand that the enemy could lull them to sleep if they're not careful. Wherever the people who need to respond this morning fall in that continuum, I ask that you would strengthen them and give them the hope that you are going to be able to show up and, and resolve whatever it is that the enemy's throwing at them. We love you so much. Thanks for your word. Thanks for this church. And thanks for the reality that even when it's raining outside, you're still raining in each of our lives. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.